0: May we pray. Creator and loving God, bend down so that you can hear our cries and come among us. By your gracious light and life and death for us, bring the light into the darkness of our hearts. And anoint us with your Holy Spirit so that we can shine your light in all the world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. We're living through what is the most widespread and devastating pandemic in living memory. State and local authorities are telling people not to gather in groups of 10 or more. We're being told that for the time being at least, mass gatherings can contribute to fueling a public health crisis. And this is a tough place for the church to be. The lifeblood of the body of Christ is our corporate gathering for worship. The word for church in Greek, ekklesia, describes a public, gathered assembly of Christians, proclaiming allegiance to our King, being formed and transformed, and receiving His presence among us in the Word and sacrament. We believe that in this sacrament of Holy Communion, Christ is really, truly, and objectively present through the elements to the people of God who are gathered to commune with him and with each other. When Paul speaks of the body of Christ in Scripture, he speaks of it in different ways. The body in which Christ was incarnate, crucified, resurrected, and ascended. The mystical body which is his people. And the Eucharistic body in which we, his baptized people and followers, Receive and commune his body and blood. In this threefold understanding of the Lord's body, we can readily see why gathering for public congregational worship is something distinctive from private devotions in the home, which is in fact the basis and foundation of that private worship. The Eucharist is the source and the summit of the Christian life. Gathered worship and word and sacrament is therefore not an optional add-on for Christians. We cannot simply upload our worship online and expect that nothing will be lost. And yet, to meet publicly now constitutes a massive public health risk, which is inconsistent with our duty to love our neighbors as ourselves. These are extraordinary circumstances and days. And the choices being made in the church around the world are certainly extraordinary as well, and temporary. But I do hope the things that we learn missionally will become ordinary in our lives in the future. We suspended our gathered worship during this season and moved to online formats, so as to do our part of the common good to flatten the curve of this pandemic. But at the same time, we must regard the present crisis as an impairment in our communion with each other and with the Lord. It is something that we should lament and mourn, both in our private devotions and in our online virtual gatherings. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Nevertheless, we need to be encouraged by the fact that this is not the first time that the church has found itself in a position in which it was unable to meet corporately, gathering for word and sacrament. Christians have lived through many plagues and times of disease in which people have been quarantined and unable to attend public gatherings. The word quarantine itself comes from the practice, beginning in the 14th century, of requiring ships returning from disease-infested ports to dock for 40 days before re-entering into society. So these were times in which no one on board would have been able to gather for public worship. In a more ordinary kind of suffering, parents of sick children have often found themselves unable for various reasons to attend worship as well. And in these circumstances, the church has reached for the practice of spiritual communion. Meditating upon the sacrament and cultivating an ardent desire for it. Asking Jesus to be present to you as he is in the sacrament, even while you are unable to receive it. Precisely because of the Eucharist is the center of our gathered worship and the source and summit of the Christian life, it is good to cultivate a constant and growing desire for the sacrament of Holy Communion. The cultivation of this desire is the origin of the practice of spiritual communion, which is commended by all the saints. So this is an opportunity to reaffirm the centrality of gathered worship and word and sacrament, to grow in our passionate desire to receive Christ in the sacrament, to lament until we can gather publicly again to receive him and confess him together in the assembly, to love our neighbor and those who need practical help. There are creative ways to do that while also following the CDC, the government, and the ecclesiastical guidelines. These are extraordinary days that call for some very different arrangements. Spiritual communion typically is a pastoral way of sharing the benefits of Christ's presence in the Holy Eucharist with those who, for reason of great illness or separation, cannot otherwise receive the sacrament. And the prayer book provides a prayer, page 677, prayer 106, for spiritual reception of Christ's presence. So this is what we will be praying a little bit later in the service. Priests are called to be under authority to faithfully preach the Word of God and administer holy sacraments. We may tend to think that the liturgy as something mostly that's for us. And this makes sense. We all experience the benefits of the liturgy and receiving the sacraments. But the liturgy as an act of worship is something offered to God. We offer our lives as living sacrifices. We offer our praise and thanksgiving. We offer all of us. Our offering is joined with the sacrifice of Christ made once for all. And this is what it means that Christ is our great high priest and our mediator and advocate. So by, with, and in Christ and the unity of the Holy Spirit, the church does what it does, worships God with thanksgiving by offering all of the praise that he is due. This Holy Eucharist is an offering unto Christ. And that is why we are here today. Today, the fourth Sunday of Lent, is sometimes called Rose or Gaudete Sunday from a Latin word meaning rejoice. And we can hear this clearly in our epistle reading from St. Paul to the Ephesians. And we can rejoice because he says, For you were once dark, darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The collar of Rose on the fourth Sunday of Lent is a shock to the penitential season of what is normally purple to remind us not to forget that help is on the way, that Jesus will rise from the dead, and that will change everything. We're in penitential season, but hope, new life. Light and victory is coming on Easter. So, if it is Rose Sunday, then why are two of the priests wearing purple stoles? Well, there is a deep theological answer to this question, and it's only because we only have one rose stole. So, now to the scriptures for today. We continue our wonderful journey through the season of Lent and we are in the lectionary cycle A and there are some incredible readings and I encourage all of us to spend time with and to go back to them. The gospel this morning is a masterpiece in the gospel of John. In many ways the story of the man born blind parallels the story from last week the woman at the well. The woman was looking for love in all the wrong places who was seeking satisfaction the wrong way, drinking from wells that left her empty, dry, wanting, and thirsty. Jesus offers her the true living water that will never run dry. And notice that this man was born blind from birth. Sight in the Bible was often a metaphor for spiritual vision and for faith. And one of the things that happen to us when we are in sin is that our mind and our vision is compromised. We don't fully get it. We're confused. We are limited. We're walking out of step in communion with God. Therefore, the man born blind is a picture for each one of us. Why? Because there is something wrong with us. And though created in the image of God... Sin distorts that image. We need that image restored and that only comes through Jesus Christ. His birth, His life, His death, and His resurrection, which is the gospel of the kingdom of God. We were all born in a dysfunctional family of the human race. We were born blind, our wills twisted, our desires and affections distorted, our minds darkened. We need to see. And the need is for salvation that only comes from Almighty God. Salvation in the Bible is more holistic. And as we talk about frequently, it is not just the forgiveness of sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. The gospel might include that, but the gospel is so much more robust. The salvation of God, the kingdom of God includes And demands our lives and our all. The privilege to embody, demonstrate, and announce the good news of the kingdom of God now. Last week, Jesus presented himself as living water. And this week, he presents himself as light. Light is a theme in the Gospel of John. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Nicodemus who came to Jesus in the night. He did not see correctly. Jesus told him that he must be born again of water and spirit. The play of light and darkness is a major theme in John's gospel. So Jesus is the light by which we see things for what they truly are. He is the word, the pattern, which makes ultimate sense of all things and is true reality. Jesus is the light of the world. And this says something powerfully about his identity and mission. He comes to bring light, to overcome darkness. After identifying himself as the light, Jesus spat on the ground, made clay with his saliva, and rubbed it on the blind man's eyes. Jesus is a healing salve for blind and sin-sick eyes. And by rubbing him in our eyes, he makes us see. Think about the sacraments. God uses real earthly things like oil, water, laying on of hands, wine and bread, among other things, to reveal himself. Because he made it this way, our faith in God makes him real in the sacraments. And at the same time, God is present in his word and omnipresent in everywhere and living in his adopted children. He is inside of us. So Jesus wants us to use his church, a living and incarnational presence. He wants to use the word and sacraments to rub in, the, in our blind and sin-sick eyes of all humanity in order that we might be healed so that we can see. Jesus then tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. This place, Siloam, means sent. One of John's descriptions of Jesus is the one who was sent. To wash in the pool of shalom is a picture of baptism, to be dipped into Jesus. We have to be washed in his blood, to be brought into living communion with him, to be immersed in Jesus, who was the sent one. And that makes us his sent people, too. Let's look at our reading from Ephesians because we have been dipped into Jesus and the healing salve of the incarnation has been rubbed into our eyes. We conduct our lives in the ways that reflect the light of Jesus Christ. Paul says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light of the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. As David was anointed king of Israel in our Old Testament reading, in baptism, God anoints our head with oil and calls us to bear witness to the light of Jesus Christ in our daily lives. Conformity to Jesus does not make us popular to the world or even to religious leaders. The people bring this man to the Pharisees and all of this happened on the Sabbath when no one was to work. It's absolutely stunning how the religious leaders overlook the miracle that happened in their midst. Instead, they focus on the religious particularities. They overlook the happenings of grace and they fuss over the details of the law. They do this because it feeds their taste for division. When we come to see, some will rejoice and some will throw stones. When the Pharisees threw the man out, Jesus seeks him out. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus went looking for the man and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. An interesting theme in the readings is how God's vision of reality contrasts with our own, whether due to our preoccupation with externals, like in our Old Testament reading when Samuel was looking to anoint the next king by looking at the appearance and the height of the sons of Jesse. And God said, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Also, our vision of reality can contrast with God when we have faulty assumptions about God's activity. The disciples thought that the man was born blind because of either his sin Or the sins of his parents. The ways of God and his kingdom rule and reign are often different than our own reality. Which one are we going to surrender to? Another fascinating theme is that clarity of vision is more of a process than a one-time event. For instance, although the blind man's physical healing is a sudden occurrence, his clarity about Jesus matures gradually as the man shares his story in verse 17 the man calls jesus a prophet and in verse 33 he is the one sent by god and then in verse 38 he is the lord worthy of his worship and faith these are all true statements concerning jesus but we can see this gradual process maturity and growth in this man and that is certainly true of us as well Something else we need to remember, he knew that he was blind and that now he could see. Until we know that we are blind, we will never truly see. Are we aware of our own blindness that needs the salve of Jesus to be rubbed into our sin-sick eyes? It takes humility. It takes a teachable heart. In closing, I'd like to briefly connect this with the liturgy. Number one, in the baptismal liturgy, the candidate is infused with the Spirit of God, as was David. The candidate is anointed with oil and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And a lit candle is presented as a symbol of the light who is Christ that is now shining in our hearts, as well as their call to share the light of Christ with the world. Number two, at the Easter Vigil, we gather around the Paschal Candle, which represents the risen Christ who is dispelling the darkness of our hearts and minds. This risen Christ faithfully sheds light on all the human race. Third, at the end of each Mass, we have in our post-communion prayer something like, send us out in the power of your Holy Spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. Also, we have a blessing, a commissioning to go into the world with joy, forgive generously, love extravagantly, live abundantly, or that God will make us faithful in his calling, cheerful in his service, and fruitful for his kingdom. Or that God would strengthen us to walk with him in this risen life so that we can serve the Lord by serving the world. And of course, the dismissal echoes these words as well. And lastly, for In evening prayer, we are reminded that Christ is the light of our life and the light of the world. Our liturgy, prayers, and worship are intentional, they're biblical, and they're beautiful. May our hearts be saturated with his presence as we worship and drink deep from him. May our eyes be opened. From blindness to opened eyes, this is the journey that we are on. This is the journey of Lent. The light of the world is in our midst, and we need not shut our eyes. In fact, the best thing to do is to open them, and to open them wide. We will not be blinded by the light. We will be saved, and we will be changed forever. May we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, may you bring your healing salve to our sin-sick eyes, and may the flame of faith burn brightly within us, and your light shine in our hearts, so that we, in turn, may bring light to others, to the glory of your name, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.